Listener Production. Okay, are you recording? G'day, you're listening to episode 87 of the Howie Games, part A. This week, an athlete that exhibits all the qualities, all the qualities that I love in a sports person because in a way, she is old school. She knows how to enjoy herself, voices her opinion, is very self-deprecating, doesn't stop smiling, and when the whips are cracking, she leads from the front and gets it done. The big players stand up in the big moments and Elisa Healy is delivering. What a shot that is, Michael Clark. You'll never see better than that. It doesn't matter, male, female, have a look at this for class. Elisa Healy, Southern Stars wiki, opening bat, five-time World Cup winner and part-time comedian. When you hear Alyssa's description of her activities the night before the recent World Cup final, you will, trust me, laugh along with her and I reckon you'll fall in love with her even more. Mystery, what is to be? So much more than meets the eye. Listen to me, time is your key. You will find out by and by. Elisa started her career almost as a reluctant cricketer, got paid a pittance, batted down the order and played in front of empty stands. In her most recent match, however, she opened the batting, you may have seen the game, in front of over 87,000 screaming fans at the MCG as a fully-fledged professional, hero to many, known throughout the nation and the world. What's not to love about that? Enjoy the story of the lady they call Midge. So when you search and then you find Know just where to go And thoughts that once used to cloud your mind You see clearly and now you know Mystery, what is to be Revealed in King Selassie I Come on children, try it with me We want to reach Mount Zion Elisa Healy, welcome along to the Howie Games How are you? Thanks for finally having me I feel like I've been pestering you to come on here no, well, let's be honest, we had a beer after, what was it, the Canberra test um, before your husband rolled up and you did drop a couple of hints, it must be said, um, and then he rolled up and had a couple of beers and the next day we found out that he'd pulled his, what, his pec muscle or something and he was out of action. Yeah, I've, I, I'm pretty sure he went from a, an A cup to a double D cup overnight <laughs> when his pec blew up to an enormous size, but um yeah, that was he did pretty well that test match, but yeah, to rip his peck like he did was interesting. Hey, but that's not about him. We're here to talk about you. Um, I'm really, really happy to have you on, and I'm that excited to talk about the World Cup final, which I watched from Costa Rica, which is a, another story. But we we will start at the start. <laughs> All right. So where does this whole thing start for you? Where where's um, Elisa born, and where do you grow up? I was actually born on the Gold Coast. Um, yeah, so, I can see a bit of Goldie in you. I, know, I can I'm, see a bit of Goldie in you. I've been at private school my whole life, but I'm still, <laughs> no one knows that. And uh, I'm still a bogan at heart. So um, God bless that. And every time we drive into the Gold Coast, it feels like home, strangely. But yeah, I was born up there. We moved to Sydney when I was seven, and um, we've lived here ever since. So whilst I'm a Queenslander, deep, deep down, I, I've played all my sport for New South Wales and um, am a New South Welshman through and through. And for those that don't know, your sporting background in your bloodlines, um, it's a pretty strong sporting set of bloodlines, I guess, isn't it? There's, there's cricketers all over the shop. A lot of cricket, yeah. Obviously, Uncle Ian played for Australia and um, my dad and my other uncle, so Greg, my dad, and my uncle Ken both played for Queensland at some point throughout their their young sporting lives and, um, yeah, good Good cricket genetics there. I think all my cousins, um, all of the boys actually that have played cricket have all wicket kept as well. So it's um, it's a weird thing in our family that I think if we play cricket, we have to wicket keep. So <laughs> um, 
a bizarre one, but at the same time, it's it's kind of really cool that um, we have that little tradition in our family and uh, long may it continue. I'll ask you some questions you haven't been asked before, some you've been asked a thousand times. This is one of the ones you've been asked a thousand times. The Healy name, is it a blessing or a curse? The name of a famous athlete when you're following in on the same sporting area, is it, is it a good thing or a bad thing or a bit of both? Um, it's a strange one for me because being a young girl growing up playing cricket, was strange and I don't think anyone really put, well, they did put two and two together eventually, but, you know, being a young girl playing cricket was not a normal thing, you know, when I was growing up. So I think it kind of helped. I think for me, I used to joke that I wonder if the selectors would have turned around, um, you know, if my last name wasn't Healy. I wonder if I was, if I'd stood out that much or if they actually turned around and thought, oh, there's a young Healy, let, let's watch her wiki keep. So for me, I think it was a, it was a blessing. Um, Definitely from a, a wicketkeeping point of view, I feel like I had access to one of the best keepers in the world, um, well, best keeper in Australia that, you know, we potentially seen behind the stumps. So it's um, for me it was great to have access to that and, and pick the brains. But, um, yeah, definitely a blessing, I think. Now it's I don't actually get referred to, to Uncle Ian too much anymore, so I guess it's kind of been a good thing. I guess it's swapped the other way around now, isn't it? That he's at least a Healy's uncle. I think, I think he that's fair asked, enough. I think yeah. he get he gets asked that question more than I do now. Are you sort of are you the the uncle of Elisa Healy, or is she, um, you know, your niece? And I think he he often says that she's my niece now. So it's um it's kind of a nice twist. So seeing you bounce around in life, I presume you were into all sports growing up as a youngster. I played literally every sport under the sun. Um, just pretty much to get out of school. I think my parents paid all this money for me to go to school and I'm, I'm pretty sure in year 12 I missed about 100 days of school because I was out playing sports. So uh, thanks mum and dad for paying my school fees, but um, I was really just there for a good time. But uh, played every sport under the sun, even down to lacrosse. Um, I played lacrosse for New South Wales at, um, randomly in I think year nine or ten, um, which was quite bizarre, but loved it all. Um, always think... Always thought I wanted to play hockey for Australia, but um, as we just alluded to earlier, my training regime wasn't quite up to that, and so I fell into cricket instead. Difficult question to ask, um, so I'll just come out and ask it with as much empathy as I can. Um, a lot of people would think that you're an only child, mm-hmm. um, but that is not the case. Yeah, it's uh, well, people often ask me, do you have any brothers or sisters? And I normally just give them the short answer, no, and I get the old... Oh, you're an only child. That explains a lot. And I, to, I laugh it off, but it hasn't always been the case. Uh, when I was 12, uh, my older sister, who was 15 at the time, passed away. And um, yeah, quite a, a sad time, obviously, still for our family. Um, you know, me being such a, a young a young girl at the time, it, it probably didn't hit me as much as it does now. I think I'm about to turn 30 and she'd be about well, 33 or 34 now. And, um, you know, the the opportunities that you miss out on that to have an older sister and I feel I feel bad for my mum and dad because, you know, they never get to got to see her grow up into the an amazing person that she would have been. Uh, I feel like she was a better human than I was, definitely, and probably not as, as talented sporting wise, but gave everything a real crack. So it would have been really cool to see, you know, the, the young woman that she would have turned into. But um yeah, a really sad time for us, but I guess Help make me as resilient as I am today and it, it does give me that perspective in life and that's probably why I am so bubbly and um, just enjoy everything I do because, you know, to go through that, you know, as a young person is not much fun and just gives you the perspective that, you know, life's not that bad and you can just 
crack on and, and enjoy what you've got. What happened? Uh, well, she, interestingly enough, on, the, on a sporting field, she uh, went into anaphylactic shock and collapsed and on a touch football field and um, I guess obviously passed away from there. But it was one of those bizarre situations where I was at home with mum. My dad was away on a conference, I think, up on the northern beaches somewhere and um, mum turned around and said to me, I've just got a bad feeling, I, I need to go. I need to go and see Corrine's touch football. And it wasn't necessarily a bad feeling. I think she just said, I've, I've got a feeling I need to go. Can I just drop you? Uh, we had some family friends around the corner. Can I just drop you there and, and I'll go? And I said, yeah, yeah, whatever. I'm pretty sure I didn't say that. I was like, no, oh, like, bloody mm. hell, what are we doing? And she dropped me there and I had absolutely, I was so unaware of it and forgot that I'd, I slept there that night and didn't think anything of it, that there was an issue. And lo and behold, the next day, mum came and, and saw me and um, obviously sat me down and gave me the news. But How old were you? Uh, I was 12. But for my mum to be there, she got there, got out of the car and walked to the field and saw it happen. Um, is a Ultimately, Corrine died in her arms, which is a, which is a horrible thing. But um, I guess it was one of those bizarre moments where she felt like she needed to be there and got there and, you know, as sad as it was, it was probably nice to, you know, that at least mum was there in that moment because it would have been horrific. Give me an honest answer now. Is this a Howie, let's talk about something else or <laughs> this is okay to talk about this? I, I'm, I'm okay talking about it. You can probably hear in my voice that I get a little bit choked up because I don't talk about it a lot. Um, I never really speak about it. Uh, I never... I guess want to use it as an excuse for anything um, or or anything like that. It's it's just that I I never really talk about it a lot. But it's interesting now that you know it's such a long time on that I guess people find out about it and want to want to speak more about it, which I'm okay with. But it still does um, you know make you a little bit upset as as it probably should. Yeah, someone told me about it yesterday, and, and I had no idea. And I was thinking, well, do I ask her about it? <laughs> do, I, do I not ask her about it? Um, as a parent. Mm of an eight and a 10 year old, I cannot put myself in your parents' shoes. Mm. Uh, that's, that's one thing that I think hurts the most and that for mum and dad to, to lose a child, I think for me, losing a sibling, don't get me wrong, I'm not taking this out of perspective, but, and I'm not never okay with it, but I, I sort of was so young at the time and it, it probably didn't, I didn't appreciate it at the time. And, and I sort of, not that I moved on, but you sort of dealt with it. But for mum and dad to have one less person in the house, you know, she was 15 at the time. She was, you know, a teenager, um, you know, she had a personality and like I said, she was a really good, a really great person. And for them to not have her anymore and look, I was a shit of a teenager too. I was a, um, you know, probably lashed out a bit and to become an only child was was really hard for me because then all the all the pressure all the focus was on me and I hated that and I probably rebelled against that and I become fiercely independent so mum and dad now is sort of you know I'm not saying they're null and void but I don't need them for as much stuff and I, I guess that's been really hard for them as well um, you know that their daughter's so independent and going out and doing her own things and um, yeah it's it changed our family dynamic and I think that's that's probably the hardest thing to cop especially for my mum and dad. Remarkable that they can go through something like that and stay in love with each other. <laughs> I know that's that that's my immediate thought. I think to myself, wow, if that happened to one of my kids, what type of strain would that put on my relationship with me and my wife? It would be 
um, a tremendous strain. Yeah, look, I, I, we're not perfect. We're not the perfect family. Um, Who is? Who is? You know, I can I can see it now that it has. Uh, my mum and dad will, will never get over that. Um, there's still a lot of grief there. Um, mum, fortunately, likes to talk about Corrine quite a lot, and every time she stumbles across a photo, she'll send it through of us as youngsters and. That, that's really nice and she, she wants to talk about it a lot but Dad and I are really similar and we don't talk about it a lot. We just sort of um, push it all inside and um, sort of deal with everyday life like we do. So it, it's difficult for them but they've gone and they've travelled. They lived in Singapore for five or six years and gone and done other things with, with their life to, to try and find a way to move on and I guess to mend themselves as well and it's never going to happen that you know, there's still, there's a big piece of them lost. I think mum explains it, that there's a whole big chunk of my heart that's no longer there and it's never going to heal itself. But, um, you know, they're, they're getting along with, with everyday life as best they can. And for me personally, it's just about me going out and doing everything I possibly can and enjoy myself and, and make sure that, you know, I can make the family proud and, and give them something to smile about. How did you deal with the grief as a, did you say you were 12? Yeah, I was 12. Gee, that's young to be trying to understand something like that. I I can honestly say I don't think I did understand it at the time. I think no, yeah, how could you? How even could you? even I remember Mum asking if I wanted to go see her for one last time before they they switched the machines off, and I said no way. Like, why would I want to do that? I don't want to remember her like that. I'd like to remember her as my older sister, who um, you know was being a pain in the bum before she left the house. Um, you know, things like that. So I don't think I quite comprehend it. It's like I said before that it's probably only now that, you know, I'm slightly older and, you know, I look around at all my all my friends from school or cricket or um, other sport who've got siblings and they've all got kids and, you know, that that's a really cool part of their life that, you know, I never get the chance to experience and that's sort of it's probably more heartbreaking. But, um, look, I don't know how I dealt with it at the time. I've probably buried myself in sport. I think the day that... Um, a day that, that that they actually switched the machines off, I made 100 at Dremoyne Oval um, in a school team, which she was at the school at the time and um, with all her friends that were in my team. So it was just like little moments like that that we can obviously celebrate her, but I think I just buried myself in sport and just sort of kept going with life. Cricket. Um, let's move on. Cricket. Um not always the be-all and end-all for you. Like sometimes you speak to some athletes and it's, right, when I was five, all I wanted to do was play my sport. Not so much for you? Yeah, I, I explained it as I was a reluctant athlete, really, and not just a cricketer, a reluctant athlete. I love playing sport and I never really thought I was going to have a career out of any of it. I, I just thought, you know, I'd have a job outside of – I'd always dreamed to play for Australia in whatever it was, but – you know, I'd probably have a job outside of it. It would be a hobby. So for all of a sudden a 19-year-old kid to be debuting for Australia and um, it potentially being a career option was such a bizarre thing for me. It only really hit me then and there that that's really what I wanted to do. It got taken away from me really quickly. Um, actually, in that tour, I'm pretty sure I got dropped at the back end of it. I wasn't doing my job properly. And I think it was then and there that I thought, oh, maybe this is what I want to do and maybe I should work a little bit harder and make sure that I don't have this feeling of being dropped again because it's not much fun and I actually did want to play for Australia as much as I was probably not thinking I was. We'll get to playing for Australia and I'm fascinated about what it was like playing your first game 
<laughs> as opposed to what it's like playing now and, and how wonderfully well women's sport has progressed. But you were in that um, generation where the girls were playing with the boys mm-hmm. and causing angst for some blokes. Is angst the right word? Um you, did you get picked for your fancy private school? Was it, <laughs> I did, yeah. What was it called? Barker. Uh, Barker. Barker so College. How'd they let a bogan from the Gold Coast in a place <laughs> like that? Well, yeah. In, well, actually, I went to MLC before that, and That's that was so posh. That was very posh. And what was the uniform? Uh, it was a lovely blue dress and a very pinstripe blazer. Um, hat or not? Yep, hat. Always what a hat. What type of hat? Uh, just a wide brim, standard school hat. That's like not you. Navy blue. That's not you. Well, but funnily enough, that's what happened. So I went to MLC, started in year six and went right through till year nine. And I was sort of, I, lo- I loved it there. I had a great group of friends around me. Um, and I felt like I got away with murder at that school, obviously, because of what had happened to me. Um, and Corrine was at that school at that time. So I felt like I was queen of the school because I could mm. literally get away with whatever I wanted. But Mum approached me at the end of year nine and said, look, uh, I'd like you to go and look at Barker. And I said, why? Like, I'm happy at MLC. I want to stay there. I've got a good group of friends. And she said, no, I think we should. And I was like, okay, well, let's do it at some point. We left it right till almost the end of January, I think. And um, she took me up there and we walked through it. I had no no want at all to go there. And we walked through it and she looked at me and said, would you like to go here? And I was like, yeah, okay, I'll give it a go. Because I, I saw how fun it was. Um, obviously, the, the boys there made it a lot easier for me to be who I was, obviously being really sporty and athletic. And um, yeah, I, I loved every minute of going to Barker. I never even thought I was going to move schools, but I'm glad I did. And for them to give me the opportunity to play in the boys' first 11 um, just shows what a what a great school they were at the time. And I guess, um, well, moving on now, they're, they're pretty much fully co-ed now. They've, they've made that decision. So yeah, it was a great, great school and playing in that first 11 was a great time in my life. It's, it's created some really great memories for me. And personally, I think it actually developed my cricket a lot quicker than, um, what I would have had if I just had kept floating along with it. Because you're such a, a graceful person and you always think positively about people, um, you're mentioning how wonderful it was playing there, uh, reading about it yesterday. It's the first time your name that I could find mm-hmm. comes up in the traditional newspaper print. And yep. it was about this girl that was all of a sudden going to play with the boys in their first team. Wasn't uh, super positive in some small quarters, it'd be fair to say. It's it's honestly the first time I'd experienced sexist behaviour right. in my life. I probably It's always been there. I'd played with the boys growing up, but they always just accept accepted me. The boys were my age and even their dads um, were fine with it. They saw that, you know, I was good enough to be there and it was probably a really eye-opening experience for a young 17-year-old girl to finally see what this was all about. Um, But it was a bizarre time. I remember my mum and dad were away on a conference again and um, my grandma was looking after me and we got a knock on the door at 6am and I was like, who the bloody hell would that be? And they opened it up in my pyjamas and there's Denham Hitchcock from Channel 9 oh. holding holding a newspaper in front of my face and said, would you is like to the, comment on this? Is he the bloke with the big muscles? He did at the time, yeah. Yeah, right, okay. Well, funnily enough, since then I've seen him, um, whatever that hang gliding or whatever it is, and get stuck in a tree at Long Reef, but that's another oh. story. But G'day to Denham, hope you're okay. So <laughs> why, why is he knocking on the door? Well, there's a 
he said, would you like to comment on this? And I said, what are you talking about? And he said, look at the newspaper. Have you not seen it? And I said, it's 6am. I just woke up. What, <laughs> what am I looking at? And he showed me the front page of the newspaper and it was a photo of me and my two, my two schoolmates um, with a, holding a bat over my shoulder and a headline of Osama bin Laden. But underneath our photo was um, <laughs> obviously the big hoo-ha about someone uh, having a crack at me playing in the in the first 11 and making a big, big stink out of it. So it was... Um, so it was, a, it, it was an old boy that had sent a, a, an email or give yeah, me the background? Yeah, an old, a Barker old boy sent in a, an email saying that uh, we need to save Barker Cricket now. Um, there's no Ooh. way he found out that obviously that they'd picked a girl and it was going to be the end of Barker Cricket. There's going to be more girls playing. The, the girls are going to overrun the boys, I'm pretty sure was the, the gist of it. I never read the letter, but that's what I was told. And... Um, Funnily enough, it made the front front page of the newspaper, um, and yeah, I spent the whole day. It was a fir- it was fantastic because a I didn't have to get the train to school. Someone <laughs> dropped me to school, so great. There's me wheeling my cricket bag in, um, avoiding the cameras, and all I saw all day was the principal running from one gate to the other, um, answering media all day. Um, and they they treated <laughs> me fantastically. They sheltered me from all of that, but it was a bizarre day, I think, for me and the school and. At the end of the day, we won the competition that year, so the old boy can suck it. Woohoo! Woohoo! <laughs> we um, did save Barker Cricket. We won the tournament. So, there you go. yeah, happy days. Um, and long may that continue. You talked <laughs> about playing for Australia. Um, I've got it here. Your first five games for the New South Wales Breakers, five innings, 24 runs in total. Mm. So you're playing professional sport for the first time as a, what are you, 17, something like that? Yeah, I think. I think I was 16, yeah. 16. 16, 17, yep. And then you're playing for Australia, 21 from 11 in your first game. Congratulations. Mm-hmm. I've done yeah. my reading. So what is women's professional cricket like? What year are we talking now when you're playing for Australia? Uh, it was 2009-10, so... Okay, so it's only 11, 11 years ago. Yeah. What was professional cricket like then when you walk into the Australian dressing room? Uh, it was a lot more intense than what it is now, which which is quite bizarre. In what um, respect? Well, it, I think because it wasn't a career for everybody, everyone was trying to make the the most out of what they were doing for Australia. It was, we had to train all the time. We had to do everything. It was very stringent, um, very structured, um, whereas now it's quite relaxed. I think where there's that trust within our group that everyone's doing what they can to the best of their ability to get the desired result. And because we're all fully professional now, it's just expected of us, whereas I think back then it was, you know, they had to put those things in place to make sure people were doing the right thing, but it was a bizarre time. I think I debuted at Adelaide Oval in the one-day format in front of nobody, um, mm. which was, I guess, what the boys got to experience the other day. But, um, yeah, that to then look back 11 years and see 87,000 people at the MCG in a World Cup final was remarkable. Um it's changed so dramatically over that that eleven years. Um, obviously for the better, but I, I remember sitting in the my first ever meeting um, on a camp up in Brisbane for the Australian side, and Belinda Clark stood up in front of the group. She'd just um, taken over that that lead role and said, uh, "The way that women's cricket is going, we're not playing any long format. We're going to play T Twenty cricket. That's how we're going to market the game." Mm. Um, moving forward and you've all got to be on board. And I remember sitting there being so disappointed. All I ever wanted to do was get a baggy green and play test cricket for Australia and I guess it was the best decision they've ever made. Look at look at the game now. T20 cricket's done wonders for the women's game and 
um, kudos to them for making that call. So as a youngster, when you're playing for New South Wales, et cetera, do you have a job outside of cricket? Uh, well, I was still at school, so I was schooling. Um, but once I finished school, I took a year off um, and worked at KFC. So oh, did you you? Know, <laughs> took on the big roles. Um, I was the only one in there. I pretty much was managing the store, I feel, because I was the only one who didn't smoke. So everyone was having smokers <laughs> all day and I was running the ship while um, everyone was outside on the smoke. So I was making all the burgers, cooking all the chicken, cooking all the chips and doing the front while they were all out the back having a cigarette. So, <laughs> What's uh, the key to cooking a zinger? Well, thankfully I didn't have to cook the chicken, but um, the zingers are easy to make. What I did find <laughs> and what I did learn from working at KFC is how to wrap a wrap properly. And right. I still teach a lot of people in our team to this day at the luncheon when the wraps are out and they're throwing their salad in there and they're trying to wrap it and it falls apart in their hand. I, I give them a quick lesson of this is the best <laughs> way to wrap it because let's be honest, the twisters are the best wrapped things, you know, in fast food industry. This could be the greatest skill ever passed on on this podcast. It's fantastic. It's, it's so easy and you wrap it up tight enough that nothing explodes all over you. So it's it's easy. <laughs> um, how, I'll just ask you, so when you're starting to play for New South Wales mm. or, no, let's take Australia. Uh, are you on a match payment situation then when you're playing for Australia for the first time in 2009? No, uh, it was... I'm pretty sure my retainer was five thousand dollars for the year. So five thousand bucks. We just got five thousand bucks for the year. We weren't I'm almost positive that we didn't get match payments um, at that time. It was only later on that I think that came in. But yeah, I was on a, the big grand total of five thousand. I was on the bottom tier. Um, and so what would a top tier have been? Because you're you're 15, a kid at this stage. Yeah. So fifteen. Fifteen thousand. So, there was three uh, tiers: fifteen, ten, and five. So who are the stars of that side and what are they doing that they can play cricket but only be earning $15,000 from it? Uh, well, I think the the big dogs at, at that time were sort of the Laces, the Lakers, the mm-hmm. Alex Blackwell, Jody Fields, the skipper. So all of them had work outside of, of cricket as well. So the Laker was, um, well, when I was coming through, she was running the, the high performance department at Cricket New South Wales, the pathways department at Cricket New South Wales. So she was heavily involved in the game. Alex Blackwell was doing a doctoring degree at um, at uni and working as well. So, yeah, all these big stars of the game that we see now um, talk about the game, they all had full-time jobs outside of cricket, which was insane. Have you studied along the way or not? <laughs> yes, I have. Uh, I was at uni for about eight years right. part-time and still haven't finished. Um, but I was doing... <laughs> I was doing marine biology, but I've marine got... Marine biology? Yeah, I've got like five subjects left to do, but they're all prac-based. But you know what? <laughs> What's funny about it, I should have enrolled again this year because now that coronavirus yes. is hit, everything's online. So I could yes. actually finish my degree this year. We'll have to wait and see. Can oh, you we'll, see? We'll do a Howie Games next year and okay. I'll let you know how we go. And you're a fully-fledged marine biologist. Are you a fan of Seinfeld? The sea was angry that day, my friends. <laughs> and as I made my way past the breakers... A strange calm came over me. I, I don't know if it was divine intervention or the kinship of all living things, but I tell you, Jerry, at that moment, I was a marine biologist. Oh, my God, everyone says that to me. That's the first thing everyone says. Do well, you watch Seinfeld? I, <laughs> I looked into the eyes of the great fish, you mean mammal. It's, it's the greatest Seinfeld episode when the titleist from Kramer goes down the blowhole. It's one of George's only successes, Elisa. I said, easy, big fella. <laughs> And then, as I watched them struggling, I realised 
that something was obstructing its breathing. From where I was standing, I could see directly into the eye of the great fish. Mammal. Whatever. It, um, it is the first question that everyone asks. But funnily enough, Mitch's sister um, started the degree about four or five years after me, has finished it, um, and isn't even working in the marine biology field. So I feel like I've, I've done the right thing. She's Can pulling beers. Can you see yourself? Well, she was. Can you see yourself as a marine biologist or not? Oh, I'd love, I'd love to do it. Um, I'd love to finish my degree at some point, um, definitely. But the way that cricket has changed over the last mm. five years, in particular, um, and how much we're travelling now, makes it incredibly difficult to do that degree. Um, I've done a lot of business subjects along the way as well because I can do them online. But one day I'll get a piece of paper to say that I actually did study, and I, some of it did sink in. Can, I'm going to put you on the spot here. Tell me something about marine biology that I don't know. Tell me something about a fish or a crab or a... Oh, do not ask me that. <laughs> Come on. You know, I haven't been years. at uni for like five years, so I don't remember any Just of it. Just give me one fact. <laughs> um, okay, I'll, I'll think about it while I'm answering okay. these questions. I'll come All back right. to you. All right. You mentioned um, Mitch. Um, I love, I absolutely love a story of romance and love, and I often <laughs> ask my guests about how and where. Um, you two met playing cricket? Yes, we met at Cheltenham Oval um, in the under nines rep cricket competition. So we oh, played. I didn't ag- know you were that young, under nines. Yeah, we played against one another for club cricket, and we played with one another for rep cricket in that for the northern districts. And <laughs> he, well, put it this way: I was the only girl in a group of fourteen boys. So mm-hmm. I don't remember Mitch, but Mitch remembers me because I was the only little girl, right? So he always says, oh, I remember Elisa from Cheltenham Oval under nine. So when I tell that story, I can't remember it, but he tells that story. So I'm not sure he fell in love then and there, but um, yeah, we've known one another a long time. We played right, all our cricket right through together. He was a wiki as well, wasn't he? Yeah, we shared the wiki keeping till about under 13s, I think, when another boy came along and um, we shared the wiki keeping after that, but Mitch started bowling a little bit more, I think about under 14s. So he was obviously a lot smaller then because it's always the small kids that's the wiki. He was a different shape back then to what he is now. He's obviously very tall and lean now, but he was very short and a little bit wider. So he was what? he was a perfect wiki keeper. Yeah, he was, uh, it took a while for him to stretch out. Uh, I'll put it that way. But um, he was obviously one of the nicest kids and um, obviously got along really well with him at that time. And then Finally enough, we kept bumping into one another at Cricket New South Wales when he, I think I, I was, well, I was 16 when I started and I think he was about 18 when he got a rookie contract. So we just kept bumping into one another and, um, yeah, lo and behold, I guess a couple of years later, we're, we're dating. Okay. It sounds you're so weird gonna, to put it well, that Well, you're way. not going to get off the hook there. Tell me about <laughs> dating. I'm fascinated. Well, it was actually a weird scenario that, um, well, we'd always kept in contact. He, he worked at... Um, Ashfield Leagues Club, I think, and he worked like that late shift. He's actually a really good person to talk to about um, even the professionalism of the men's game because, you know, he was a, he was on a rookie contract. Um, I don't think they got paid back then, but they were welcome to go to every session. So he was going to uni during the day, going straight to training, blues training, because he wanted to go to every session he could. And then he'd work at Ashfield Leagues overnight, so he'd finish at 3 a.m., go home to bed for a couple of hours and then start it all again. So he was a really interesting one to, to talk to about that. But, um, yeah, he obviously he used to finish his shift at like 3 a.m. So I'd often get, you know, a text message at like midnight or something when the, when it was a bit quiet um, on my old Nokia 3310 back then and it'd buzz away. <laughs> the Nokia 3310. Yeah, and uh, he'd always text me when he was a bit bored. So we always kept in contact and then it actually took uh, – I was in Brisbane – 
playing hockey um, for New South Wales and he was up there um, at the academy one year and we kept bumming into one another up there. So we went and had a few drinks one night with all the cricketers. We I think we had the worst under-21s championship for any New South Wales team. So we went out and celebrated um, or, or drowned our sorrows and uh, all the cricket boys came and um, we spent the whole night together. That sounds bad. Not not in that sense. We actually ended up having to carry our coach, our hockey coach back home. So um, it was like Nick Maddinson. That's a real role model, yeah. the hockey coach. Nick, Ma- Nick Maddinson and one of my other hockey mates, um, you know, helped found out oh, they took our coach back and we at Mitch and I had to go back in and find our manager who was missing. So, lo and behold, they've never coached or managed again, funnily enough. Surprise, surprise. Um, And, yeah, so Mitch and I just sort of spent the night together and enjoyed one another's company. And then he got back to Sydney a couple of days after we did and we just hung out nonstop for two weeks and um, that's how it started. And then all of a sudden he was on a plane to India to make his Australian debut and I guess we decided that we were going out and... We're exclusive, I suppose. Oh, that's what he said. It's such a weird thing when you just sort of end up dating. It's not like he took me out on a first date or anything like that, but, um, yeah, it was a weird thing. Who proposed, you or him? Uh, he did. It was a, it was lovely, actually. We we went away and um, we, we obviously, you can get the gist of it. We drink, well, I like to drink a lot of alcohol because, you know, <laughs> makes me a cheery person. And... Um, a, we decided on that day we'd have an alcohol-free day. We said, well, all right, we'd been celebrating enough. Let's have an alcohol-free day and let's go on a bushwalk. So we uh, were up on Hayman Island and uh, we were packing the bag for our bushwalk, put, put a towel in, we are going to go for a swim and Mitch put two beers in there and I was like, what the hell are you doing? Like we, we decided we're having an alcohol-free day and he's like, oh, we might want one along the way. And I was like, oh, hang on, something's happening here. Like <laughs> I bloody picked it and then um, – yeah, he almost fell down a cliff face trying to do it, but uh, he proposed and I'm pretty sure my answer was, really? <laughs> uh, and, yeah, we got married, what, 12 months later. Back to Elisa in a moment. As I said at the start, due to episodes dropping more frequently and randomly, we are rolling episode to episode at the moment, so I'm not sure who is next up on the show, but please check out the back catalogue and see what you may have missed. And if you could, recommend the show to a loved one. Fill their ears with the Howie games. That would be cool. Alrighty, back to Elisa. Um, just one on your husband, and I was trying to think who I was saying this to. It might have even been my wife on Saturday a couple of days ago because my young bloke was saying, Dad, what's going to happen with the cricket? Mm. And he actually said to me, what's going to happen with – he actually said to me, what's going to happen with Finchie and what's going to happen with Starkey? Will they still have their jobs? And Paddy Cummins, he loves Paddy Cummins. And I was saying to my wife about – we got on the, uh, the subject of your husband and how he is the most – unlikely fast bowler you would ever meet. He is the, like, if you met him and someone told you he's a professional athlete that causes fear (laughs) in his opponents, you would just say, well, that can't be right because he is the friendliest, warmest, most gentle, empathetic athlete I think I know. Isn't he? Yeah. Yes, he is. Everyone sees the nice side of Mitch. I get the real Mitch at home sometimes, right. but well, no, maybe he's it's just because I've different. got a camera with me. I say that is not any different, <laughs> but um, yeah, you're right. I, but I often think that that's the fast bowling group. If you look at all of them, you'd yeah. say the same thing about Pat Cummins. He's trying to knock blokes' heads off regularly, and that's you true. know you wouldn't. And Josh Hazelwood as well. He's got like yeah, a baby face. You wouldn't think that he that's was doing that as well. So. Um, but the three of them grew up playing together, so they're they're like best mates. Oh, Pat's a bit younger, but Josh, Mitch, grew up playing together, and Pato, 
So they, they're like best mates. They just enjoy one another's company and go out there. And, um, yeah, you're right. It, it is, it's bizarre to see him like that in the field sometimes as well. But I'm, I'm, I like it when he fires up, I think. Um, that's when he's bowling his best and shushing all the critics. Yeah, he, he rarely does. Hey, talking about critics on this point, I'll, I don't have it to play to you. I'll play it right now in the podcast uh, when your great mate Elise Perry came on the show a year and a half ago. Mm-hmm. And she talked about the fact she wanted the media to start criticising performance mm. for female athletes. Yep. Because in her mind, uh, I'm trying to remember exactly what she said, in her mind it would mean that the sport was going up another step. Are you feeling that's happening? Do you view it that way? Broadcasters and, and commentators are seeing like these players more and more, so they're getting an idea of who they are and what they do. And then on top of that, um, yeah, there's there's more of a critical edge to it. And I think that's so important to actually make the sport legitimate. And um, yeah, is it hard when you hear the criticism for the first uh, time? Oh, I, yeah, I suppose so. But I, I'm I'm certain um, that male athletes still find it hard when they hear, hear it. They're just kind I think of anyone does, don't they? Yeah, adjusting to it, but. Um, that makes it, I guess, when you do something well, um, <laughs> even sweeter. But, um, yeah. but yeah, I think it just makes it legitimate and it makes it real. And um, I know from my perspective, and I'm sure a lot of the girls' perspective, they'd rather have that because it means that people care and they're watching and almost that they've taken ownership of the team. Yeah, 100%. I'm in complete agreeance with Pez in that, that, you know, your sport's being taken seriously when people are criticising what you're doing, I think for a, a long period of time, everyone only wanted to write nice things about us because they wanted to promote the sport and, and make it seem like we were doing everything, you know, perfectly. But the reality is that, you know, we're striving to be better every day and we want critique on how we're playing and, you know, how we could be better. I think comparing it to the men's game is not fair. That's not that's not the way that you should be criticising our game. But, you know, critiquing people's forms, I think, form is, you know, the next step for us and, I've experienced that over the last six weeks um, leading into the World Cup and I loved every minute of it. Um, I thought it was fantastic that people were worried about uh, my form leading in and our batters' form leading into the World Cup because it means that people genuinely cared about our team and wanted our team to do well and they they wanted us to play better. So I I saw it as a complete compliment and I guess for me to cop it personally um, took a massive load off the team and... I can handle it. I can deal with it. I throw out smack every day of my life for a living. So for mm. me to for me to cop it as well was completely fine and shoulder it from the rest of the the rest of the side. So I think it's great. It's great that our our sports move forward in that direction and and long may it continue fairly. <laughs> I will. I'll get to your lead into the World Cup when we get to the World Cup, which I'm excited about talking about because we're going to go through it game by game, ball by ball, <laughs> shot by shot. Don't worry about that, Midge. Um, Elise Perry. Uh, again, someone you've known for a long, long time, and we'll speak about what happened with her in the World Cup. But where did you first meet the superstar that is uh, Pez? Well, we were the, we were the same. We we played against one another a lot. Uh, she was the age group below me in that in the same competition that I was speaking about before the club competition and the reps. So it was always me and say under twelves, and Pez was in under eleven. So there were two girls playing in this competition, and mm. uh, it was pretty cool. I think there was one other as well, but she's no longer playing, but which is a shame. But um, yeah, it was. I've known her a very long time. I, I distinctly remember us first becoming mates when uh, we were both playing for New South Wales PWSA, and we went down to Cobra and Baruga and to play <laughs> in the national champs. And um, so how old are you now? Uh, we were 
maybe nine or ten. Okay. We're little babies, <laughs> probably year five, year four or five. And um, our parents randomly, we were in the same, staying in the same motel in like the middle of nowhere. There was a pool, there was a golf driving range out the back, which was full of kangaroos. So we were, you know, kids in a candy store. We had you know, the whole day to ourselves. We were jumping in the pool and, yeah, we just hung out all day, every day. We played some cricket, obviously, but hung out all the time until it got dark and our parents yelled out for us to come back inside and then we went and had dinner together and then so we became buddies and, and just bonded over the, our love of sport and our love of cricket and um, we actually played soccer a lot growing up together as well. So we did sort of everything together and, um, yeah, it's been great to, I guess, share her ride with her as well. She's been an, an amazing ambassador for not just our sport but all the women's sport across this country and it's been cool to sort of ride in her coattails to an extent. How do you view that role that little girls and boys, but let's be honest, it's probably more important for little girls to be able to look up and see role models. So when you're growing up, there's not many female role models. Like I did one of these with Carrie Webb and she said at that stage, there's none. No. I'm sure you had some, but you wouldn't have had many. How is it now when little girls come up and look at you with stars in their eyes, which is just a, such a wonderful thing? Oh, it's it's incredibly uncomfortable for me, but it's also an amazing feeling, I guess, to to know that that's what they want to do and that's what they want to achieve. They want to, they're aspiring to get to play for Australia and especially when they're standing over the fence and say, can I have your hat or can I have your shirt? And I'm more than willing to give them whatever I can um, because, you know, I never had any of that growing up. It was only until I found out there was an Australian women's team and Dad took me out to see them and I met them all and they signed a poster for me and they signed everything possible for me that I knew that, you know, they existed. And I saw Julia Price take a hanger in front of first slip and that was the <laughs> first time I've heard of her and um, saw what she could do and I thought, oh, this is pretty cool. Maybe I could do that one day. So for us to, I guess, influence the next generation is is so incredibly exciting and, you know, Pez has shouldered that for a lot of her career. Yeah. Um, almost being the face of women's sport in this country and... It's it's been incredible to watch. I think I've never I've never been jealous of her. She's shouldered a lot uh, for the rest of us, and it's great to see. Um, I guess a lot of other athletes at the moment sort of having their time in the sun. Talking about Kari Webb, stick a knife in me. But uh, have you listened to the episode that she's done on this? No, I haven't. Oh. She's amazing. She was well. She was one of my role models growing up because she was the only one you saw. Um, you know, yeah. her and Lane Beachley were the only two people that you saw, and she was kicking serious ass um, mm. overseas and doing what she does. And she was a massive role model of mine. And I guess now I'm super, I'm still a little fangirl and, um, you know, being able to, to play a couple of rounds of golf with her and um, get to know her over the last couple of years has been so cool. So what was that like the first time you teed up? Because I know you love your golf, but now <laughs> you're standing next to Caddy Webb, who can go on the golf course. How, how were you in that situation? Uh, I was so nervous and Mitch, <laughs> Mitch will probably tell this story better because he was caddying for me because he had, oh, that was when he tore his pec so he couldn't right. play himself. But here we are teeing up at the Pro-Am of the Oz Open down in Adelaide and it was cricket v AFL and we drew Kari Webb, which was super. And, um, you know, my handicap's like nine or something and I wow. literally hit everything across the ground for the first <laughs> 16 holes. Now, I could not get a ball in the air. I couldn't do anything. And I'm pretty sure I heard one of the other players in our team go, is she really off nine? And I was so embarrassed, but I was so nervous. And then um, I think it was maybe like the ninth hole. We were chatting away, we were being polite, and I was asking her questions and trying not to hound her too much because, you know, I was keeping it inside how excited I was to play. 
And uh, it was about the ninth hole. She was teeing off her tees with her driver and it made a strange noise. And what I later found out was it was the echo off the signage boards that was there, but it sounded really funny. And I said, I, just, I said, geez, did you middle that? That sounded weird. And she said, um, I said, oh, that sounded funny. Did you hit that? And she goes, no, that's what it sounds like when you hit the middle of the club. <laughs> and I was so embarrassed and I was like, oh, and then all of a sudden we clicked because there was a bit of banter thrown around and all of a sudden I was happy and I was, I'd loosened up and I started playing a few better shots. But it was an amazing experience. And I, I think for me in particular as a young athlete to see the way that she interacted with us, she hung around for about an hour and a half after um, – We'd, we'd done everything to have lunch with us. Um, her partner, Michelle, was there and, and Michelle went and grabbed a flag and she signed it for us and um, personalised it and just hung out with us for about an hour and a half and I saw that was so cool considering she had to go out the next day and play in a proper tournament and to give the time she did to us. Um, but, yeah, it was nice for me to experience and hopefully I can replicate for another some young kid in the future. Indulge me and please listen to that episode when you've got, I will, you've got to yeah. have some time. You've got some time. Well, I've definitely got time now, so let's, let's do it. Hey, I, I want to get to the World Cup, but mm. there's a couple of things to tick off before we do because you've won five of them. <laughs> yep. So um, I want to go through the last one in a bit more detail. But the first World Cup, T20 World Cup you won, was that in the Caribbean? Yeah, 2010. Yep. So what's it like rolling over there and playing cricket in the West Indies? I've had the pleasure of commentating a couple of times there and it exceeded my expectations. Um, it's different to what I expected. H- how was um, the Women's T20 World Cup in the Caribbean? Well, I wasn't even supposed to be there. So Jodie Fields redid her hamstring about two weeks out and they, I got a phone call and no way did I think I was going. I thought they'd pick someone else. But there I was uh, on the plane on the way over there, took – three days to get there because um, we got stuck in Bangkok because the riots were on at the time. So we missed our connecting flight in Heathrow. So we had to stay a night in Heathrow. We land, by the time we landed in Antigua um, or St. Kitts, sorry, was where we started. um, Oh, what a joint. We were playing playing the Kiwis the next day. So we got in that night and our warm-up game was the next day. So, which is unheard of nowadays, but we got absolutely pummeled in that first game the warm-up game and um, took us like five days to get accustomed. But for me, it was like a Kentucky tour. I wasn't supposed to be there. <laughs> I was Jody Fields wherever I went, so I had my own room for all the five minutes before Alex Blackwell kicked me out because um, back then we were rooming, we had roommates. And um, so I got my own room for five minutes and then sat down and then Alex Blackwell came and knocked on the door and said, right, I get out, this is mine. <laughs> so I went and room with someone else and um, oh, it was an amazing experience for me. I loved every minute. Um, like you said, St Kitts was a fantastic place. We played all our round games there. There was a golf course across the road. All I did was play golf and cricket. And did you drink. stay in the hotel right on the beach? Yeah, the Marriott there. Yeah, the yeah. Marriott. Beautiful. Um, swim up bar. I was drinking smoothies every morning, <laughs> having rum punch at night. So <laughs> I was living the dream and to win it as well over in Barbados. It was a weird one where we actually played after the men. So the Aussie men played in the final and lost. Um, but... Amazingly, they all stayed around um, to watch our game. They were on their balcony cheering us on. There's a great vision of Michael Clark um, yahooing and carrying on when we won the game. I, granted, he was a few beers deep. It's probably mm. where he was getting them free, but um, he was hanging over the balcony cheering for us when we won in that game. So that was a really cool experience for me to, to be there amongst them and be able to talk to the likes of Michael Clark and Dave Warner, who was there at the time, Michael Hussey, like those sort of guys to be there and amongst them and celebrate with them afterwards as well was really cool. 
So that was, oh, the Kiwis needed 14 off the last over. Yeah, four off the last ball and Pez, that iconic Pez boot moment where Sophie Devine could not have hit a ball any harder straight down the ground and Pez kicked it to Stalaker at mid-wicket and won us the game. So it was, uh, yeah, an incredible game of cricket. Well, it's all come down to this. Last ball. Where does she go? Elise Perry, the pressure. Straight. Oh, Elise Perry, absolutely outstanding. She's put a boot out and stopped it. Soccer skills, not from the Socceroos, but from the Australian women's cricket team. They're all huddling together. Terrific effort. They have defended a total that they wouldn't have been that happy with halfway through the match. But boy, have they defended it with everything they have got. What a terrific performance from this Australian women's side. So I'm asking you this so I can get a comparison to the next question. So you come home mm-hmm. from winning your first World Cup as opposed to the lead-in to your fifth World Cup. You come yep. home from winning that first World Cup. What's the public reception at that stage? So we're back in 2010. Absolutely no idea. We, right. we snuck back in. I think they – I'm pretty <laughs> sure I remember they kept us at, together going through customs um, – just in case there was some media out there because we obviously had the trophy. Pretty sure there were no media, so we left straight away. Um, got back home, back to normal life. Not one person knew about it. And then I might be jumping ahead here, but the last two weeks of my life right now, literally probably 10 to 15 people every day stop me and say congratulations on your win. A great knock in the final. Just people that you just walking down the street have seen it and watched it and to experience that has been really cool. That's the end of Elisa Healy Part A. World Cup Triumph is on the other side. Catch you there, dudes. Listener.